Um, I want to pray for our message this morning as we dive in. So if you would join me, let's pray together. Father, this morning we are diving into a topic that can sometimes be a little touchy. And so I'm asking for your Holy Spirit to come and to guide and lead the words that are that are said today, that your message would shine through, that you'd open our minds and hearts and ears to hear what you want to say to us as a congregation this morning, Lord, but then also as individuals. So uh, we ask that it's all uh, glorifying to you, that it all lifts up the name of Jesus. Um, that's our prayer, Lord, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're, we're jumping in today, and I want to start our, our message to this morning with a passage of scripture from the book of, of Malachi. And this is a real unique passage. It's a real unique topic um, and book, really. It's a book that's actually written to God's people during a time when they are simply not following him with the faithfulness and consistency and obedience that God desires of them. In fact, I was talking to Pastor, to Pastor Matt this week, and uh, he said this, and I loved his description. He said, this book is like a prophetic punch in the face. Um, it, it's just this series of corrections and rebukes for a people who are supposed to be following God, who say they're God's children, God's people, but they aren't following him at all. And one of the, the Mayweather-esque jabs, if you watched the fight last night, that God throws in this book has to do with the area of money and finances and specifically giving and giving back to God. Here's how this body blow from God reads. This is Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. And this is God just sort of saying right from the beginning, see, my faithfulness never shifts. I'm still who I am. In spite of your unfaithfulness, my faithfulness remains. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? God answers this way, Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? And then here's God's answer. In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Listen to the just stern, severe language God uses here. Because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. You see, this is God in the face of his people being um, disobedient and unfaithful, saying, my faithfulness still remains, and if you only come back to me and turn to me, there's the hope and healing and blessing here for you in me because I am a good, faithful God. Just a remarkable sort of passage here. Now, I want to say this, this passage and this entire subject really, I believe sets off a slew of wrestling matches in the hearts and minds of the people around this room. For some of us, a passage like this will just instantly cause us to be defensive. It'll bring up questions and feelings around things like, why does God even care so much about my money? And, and, and don't messages like this just prove that all the church really wants is my money? Maybe it's your first time here and you're like, I knew it. 
I knew it. Very first time in church and the pastor's preaching on giving, just like I thought, just like on TV, right? Um, Some of you wonder, what's the deal with 10%? And why are Christians so legalistic about the whole 10% thing, the whole tithing thing? Isn't it just something from the Old Testament? And we don't follow a lot of things from the Old Testament. Why are we so fixated on that? For others of us, this subject comes with some wrestling with guilt. Guilt that you're not tithing or giving at a level that you know or think that you should. And maybe for you, maybe for you, your guilt will even go a step further. It'll even translate into resentment. Resentment over the struggle of feeling like you don't have enough money to give the way that you think or know that you are supposed to be giving. Then there's a group in this room, and maybe you weren't expecting this, but for some of us, when we talk about money and giving, our wrestling point will actually be with pride. Pride because you think you are being faithful with your money. And for this group, I believe there is even the danger that our pride can shift into judgment as we judge other people and what we perceive them to not be giving or we perceive that we are giving more than them and we feel holier than thou. And then finally, there's just some of the honest questions that we have that we wrestle with in this area. How much should I give? Where should I give? Should I just give to church Or do the other places where I give count towards my total giving to God? What does it mean that God will bless me if I give? How does this whole thing work? So this morning what I'd like to do is, as we tackle this and wrestle with this subject, is just take it head on and ask some of these questions just one by one and rattle through them and try to give as best I can um, God's answer from His Word as we struggle with with these issues. Is that all right? All right, here we go. It doesn't matter because I'm doing it anyway. Um, uh, The place I'd like to start with, maybe the most important question of all, I think it's sort of the core of this issue. Why is giving so important? Why does God seem to care so deeply about how we approach our money and our giving back to Him? Why does Jesus talk about money more than any other subject in the kingdom? And to answer this question why, I'd like to start with some words from Jesus himself. This is Matthew chapter 6. This is the famous Sermon on the Mount. The sermon that some say is the the greatest ever given by Jesus up in Galilee. Here's how it starts, Matthew 6, 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then then here's the verse. Here's the short explanation Jesus gives as to why this teaching is so essential. For where your treasure is, say it with me, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, There your heart will be also. You see, what Jesus understands and tells us in this passage, in this verse, is that your heart and your money are connected. Whether you want them to be or not, that doesn't matter. They are connected. It's just true. There is a bungee cord tethering your treasure, your stuff, your dollars to your heart. And if you want to know where your heart is, if you want to know what you truly love, if you want to know what your life is really all about, all you have to do is take a look at your money. Because here's here's what Jesus says, our money reveals our hearts. 
You see, it's easy for us to fool ourselves about what we're living for, what we love, what our hearts are telling us. But our money doesn't lie, friends. If you want to know the truth, you can't handle the truth. Yeah, you can. Just look at your money. Your money will reveal your heart. And then Jesus actually even takes it a step further. What Jesus tells in this, in this passage is not just that our money reveals our hearts, but also, and this is so significant, that our money leads our hearts. This is where this principle starts to get powerful. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, when I was a a kid, my dad, uh, he was a big football fan. My dad loves football. He actually played college football. He was an offensive lineman at Memphis State University. And so he's this big football guy. And he had this dream that his son would someday grow up to be this big, strong, like successful football player. And he was so disappointed when I just became a scrawny little basketball player. But early in early in my life, he still had the hope was still alive. And he loved football, and he loved to watch football on Sunday afternoon, and he longed for his oldest son to enjoy watching football with him. And so one of the things my dad did when I was about five, every Sunday afternoon after church, he would list all the football games. He'd get them all listed out, all the games that were going to happen that afternoon. And then he would tell me, we're going to wager a dollar between you and me on every game. You get to pick the team you want every game. So I just go, and I had the, obviously had the advantage here, right? I mean, I could see the ratings. I could see who was supposed to win. And so I could choose for every game. And there's a dollar on the line for every game. And because of this, because I got to pick the teams, um, and, and I, I mean, I was only five, but I wasn't stupid, I, I, I could come out ahead. Almost every Sunday, I would come out ahead. But it's actually my dad who would win. Why? Because all of a sudden I went from not caring about football, being completely ambivalent to football, not wanting to watch football at all, to being all in, 100% invested in every single game on Sunday afternoon. Why? What happened? What changed? Why did I care so much? Here's why. My money was on the line, right? My dollars were invested and so all of a sudden, so was my heart. Friends, this is so simple but significant. This is how it works. You put your money in and your heart gets a little more attached. And now you can see why Jesus says, get your money into the things of God. Invest in kingdom activity. Unleash your resources into God's work. Why? Why? Because God needs your money? Because God cares about your money? No. No. Because God cares about your heart. He cares about your life. That's why. People will often say in general or even say to me when they find out I'm a pastor, all the church wants is my money. And I always say the same thing in response. I always say, false, untrue, absolutely not. We want way more than your money. We want your heart. We want your soul. We want your life. Increasingly devoted to the things of God in this world, to the advancement of the kingdom through His people. And that happens when you give your money. So if you put it that way, I guess we do. <laughs> Friend, first and foremost, God cares about your money because He cares about your heart. That's why it matters. That's why giving is so significant because it's attached to your life. Next question. Then what's the deal with this whole tithing thing? Like what's, it's, such a, it's kind of a weird word. It's from the Old Testament. Christians seem to sort of answer it about what's the whole tithing thing about? And I won't spend a ton of time here um, because we could give probably two or three sermons on tithing. It's just such a thick, rich um, exploration. But let me just say this. 
Tithe is simply a word in the Bible that means a tenth part. And it's the idea that people will take a tenth of their income, a tenth of their material possessions and their money, and give it back to the work of God um, and his kingdom advancement. And the first time we see this tithing thing is actually in a, in a lesser-known passage way back in Genesis chapter 14. It's a story of how Abraham goes off to fight this battle to rescue his nephew Lot, who's been taken captive. And then after he wins the battle, he meets up with this priest named Melchizedek, and he gives this priest a tenth of all the spoils he won in the battle, sort of as a way of just recognizing that God blessed him, and he just gives back to God. And at this point, at this point in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, Tithing is not a law. It's not a command. It was not something that was expected. This is just something Abraham does in response to God's faithfulness in his life. But then as we move on, as the Old Testament and the story continues, this practice just starts to become more normal. It starts to get ingrained into the life and rhythm of the people of Israel. This is Leviticus chapter 27. A tithe of everything from the land... Whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. It's significant. It's special. It's set apart. It has, has deep, rich meaning. Tithing was used in the Old Testament to support the Levites. This is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Levites were the tribe that were put in charge of, of orchestrating and sort of running the spiritual and worship life for God's people and the nation of Israel. But if you really look at tithing, if you, if you kind of dig into it a bit, what you'll find is it's not quite as clean cut as we sometimes in the church in our day make it, make it out to be. There are actually three tithes that are listed in the Old Testament. One of them was only once every third year. But when you put all of them together, uh, most scholars believe that people in the Old Testament were giving, on average, a little over 23% a year. And that was just so that they're giving back to God and His work. And then beyond that, there were also a lot of other commands for giving. Commands like this one found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. When you are harvesting in your field, it says, and some of you are thinking like, sweet, I don't have a field. I am off the hook. Uh, you have to understand this is an agricultural society. Everyone had a field. Everyone's doing this. So, so maybe you're not as off the hook as you thought. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do, no, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for, guess who? The foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Kind of a pattern developing here, right? And then he says this, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. You see, this is a people who are always supposed to remember. This is a people who are never to ever forget who it is that provides for them. Who it is that has freed them from slavery. Who it is that has given them all they have. One author I read this week said this, These laws marked Israel off as a distinctive People. This is a people that's, that are much different than the other people in the ancient Near East of this time. In the ancient world, they were different in the way they handled their financial lives. 
This is a group whose goal was not just every man for himself. Pile up as much stuff as you can. They, that's God's people, that's the Israelites, put voluntary limits on their wealth. They lived in deliberate generosity. They put voluntary limits on their wealth. They lived in deliberate generosity. You see, friends, here's the deal. Generosity is such a priority of God for his people because generosity reflects something of who our God is. And so, of course, God's people will be generous because our God is so generous. And God commands his people to give, to tithe, because he, because he understands us. He understands the pull of the fallen human sinful nature. He understands this pull that's in you and that's in me. And tell me if you don't, if you don't relate to this. This kind of resistance inside of us, this tendency to clutch and cling and think that we will somehow reach the good life if only we can attain a little bit more. Just this feeling inside, and you don't know where it comes from, but if only I had a little bit more, then my life would be fuller, richer, more satisfying, meaningful. And that pulls in me and that pulls in you. And I'll tell you where I see it, friends. I see it in my children. I see it all the time in just little ways, and sometimes it's kind of scary. We have this family routine where... On Saturday mornings a lot, or the kids are off of school during the week, we will get up and we'll go for donuts. I I know, I know, you're thinking Taco Bell, now donuts. This is the most unhealthy pastoral family ever. Pray for them, cholesterol and all that stuff. But we love to go for donuts. Sesame Donuts is our place, and so we go down. And every single time, my kids will order the very biggest donut they can find on the shelf. And I'll tell you what it is. It's a cinnamon roll covered with maple frosting. It is like so sugarly sweet that it makes you just like, oh my gosh, it's just way over the top. And so they'll load these giant, like as big as my face, cinnamon rolls into these bags and we will bring them home. And and to make matters worse, here's what will happen. We will take them out, we will put them on the counter and then my three children will be looking at these enormous donuts and they will start to argue and debate over who gets to pick first, who gets to, to have the biggest cinnamon roll that we got. And we're talking about like millimeters of difference, right? Like a little bit more frosting on one than the other and my six-year-old will start to cry if she doesn't get to choose first and she never even finishes it anyway. But there's just this feeling, there's just this deep internal conviction, I'll be happy if I can have more, my precious, right? Like, ah! (laughs) That spirit, friends... Is not just in my children, it's alive in you and me as well. Here's another quote. Tithing was a reminder that all human beings were created to give. It has always been a training exercise to cultivate a generous, God-centered heart. That's what the Lord wants of us. For us to have a generous, God-centered heart. Now, sometimes you'll hear Christians say something to the effect of something like this. I think tithing is great, Pastor, but you know, honestly, it's an Old Testament thing. It's a law thing. And now, in Jesus, isn't it true that we are no longer under the law? Now, aren't we free? And friends, this is absolutely true. 
In fact, one of the most powerful realities of being a follower of Jesus is that we do not relate to God and connect to God by just adhering to a set of external rules. That is not how, that is not the foundation of our relationship to our Heavenly Father. In fact, the New Testament takes it even a step further. The New Testament says that what it means to follow God and Jesus has been written on our hearts. That it's not just something out there, it's something in here. The law of God, the things that please God and that make us like Him, now are written deep into our souls. You see, now through the power of the Holy Spirit, friends, you are not only commanded to obey the law of God, you actually have been given the power to do it. Hear that, that is so profound. You're not only asked to obey the law of God, you've been, by the power of the Holy Spirit living in you, been given the power to actually do it. And I mention this because sometimes in Christian circles, when we talk about giving, and this happens so often in American evangelicalism, it kind of sickens me a bit, the attitude seems to sound something like this. In the Old Testament, under the law, God's people had to live these lives of charity and compassion and radical generosity. But now that Jesus came and died on the cross to forgive me of my sins, I don't have to live that way, and I get to keep more of my money for me. Thank you, Jesus. Ding! Right? Friends, we must understand that is not the story. That is not the plan. That is not the point. In fact... In the New Testament, we read about a people who are set free, not from giving, but a people set free to give. People set free to live lives of radical, selfless, Holy Spirit-empowered generosity. In fact, just a couple things that marked the early church, the very first followers of Jesus, they were so generous that there were not people in need among them. Need in their midst just dissipated because they were so generous with one another. They gave sacrificially. They gave out of their need. Paul talks about this. He's just blown away how these people in such dire straits and in so much need would give so generously and so selflessly. They, they gave in a way that cost them, in a way that like, infringed on their lifestyle. Here's a, here's a quote from Francis Chan. Here's what he says. Lukewarm people... Give money to charity and to the church as long as it doesn't impinge on their standard of living. If they have a little extra and it's easy and safe to give, they do. After all, God loves a cheerful giver, right? Can I suggest this to you about tithing? I think the value of the tithe was and still is. It just helps us get concrete in an area that some of us would rather just leave fuzzy. Just easier not to face the truth. Easier just to sort of leave it vague because the facts might convict us too much. John Oberg says this about tithing. Tithing, I love this. Tithing is like training wheels. It's there to help teach us how to give, to help people grow and become more generous. It's intended to help you get started, but not recommended for the Tour de France. How do you know when it's time to take the training wheels off? When they are slowing you down. How do you know when to stop tithing? When it's slowing you down from being the increasingly generous person God longs for you to be. Tithing is a bad ceiling, but an excellent floor. Well, this leads to a question that many of us have, or maybe 
it's better put, just a place where some of us wrestle, a point that some of us feel. And you say it this way, perhaps. Pastor, I can't afford to give with radical generosity. I would like to give more, but the math just doesn't add up. I would be more generous if only I had more money to be generous with. So many people feel this way. And the problem with it is is this idea, the problem with this idea is that if you wait until you get more to give more, you're going to be waiting a long time. In fact, there's an economist out there by the name of um, H.F. Clark who did a lot of research on this, just this, just scores of data around this. He calls it the 25% rule. And the idea is no matter what your level of income is, and there's varying levels of income in this room, but no matter where you are, most people would like to have about 25% more than what they have right now. You see, we all just tend to think this way. I find myself, I'll just confess, I find myself thinking this way sometimes. You know what, I think things like, no, I don't need a lot more, Lord. I, I don't need to be rich. I, mean, I don't need to have as much as that guy. But if I only had this much more, about 25% more, then I'd have enough. Then I'd be fine. Then I could really be this generous person that deep inside, we both know, God, that I truly am. <laughs> now, what do you think the research shows? Yeah, after people get 25% more, over time, they get used to their new level of income and guess how much money, guess how much money they want to make to no longer feel strapped. They would like to have 25% more. And the question is, at what point, how much money does it take before you stop feeling, I I don't wish I had 25% more? Well, no one has ever made that much money, so we do not know. It just goes on for eternity. Because we always, we have this thing, this deep inside of us that tells us time and time again, I want more. And maybe the word that God wants us to learn instead of the word more is the word enough. I have enough. Think about that. If I had more money, I'd be real generous. But statistically, here's the truth. The more money people make, the lower percentage that they give away. Now, that won't be true for every single person in this room. Some of you have a lot and you're very generous. But but overall, on average, if you look at the people in our nation, if you look at people even in churches, the more money people make, the lower percentage they give away of their annual income. And here's what the Bible says. Here's, Here's one of the tools the Bible gives us to fight this tendency that lives in me and that lives in you. It's this idea of first fruits giving. This is from the book of Proverbs, chapter 3. Again, I'm just going to give you one verse this morning, but this is a concept found all throughout Scripture. Here's what Proverbs says. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. And the idea here is this. God has given us everything that we have, even the things that we have seemingly earned or feel like we deserve um, on our own. God has has given to us. He has blessed us with them through His grace and and provision. And one of the ways we recognize that, that all that we have, all of our gifts come from Him, is that we give back to Him first, not last. And this actually leads us back to another motivation for why we give. We give to God first so that through our money we can remind our hearts, we can tell our souls, we can direct our lives into this statement, God, you are number one in my life. A lot of people in our nation like to talk about how God is first. You know, there's all these creeds or mottos, God, such and such, such and such, God, such and such, such and such. It's more than just lip service, though, in the scriptures. 
God wants it really to be true. And friends, I'll tell you this, unless it's true for you financially, it's probably not true. You see, the tithe isn't like a tip we offer God at the end when he's provided a good service or given us what we, what he, you know, what we want from him. Thanks, Lord. Thanks, Lord, for really coming through 12% even this time. That was some good service. Prayer request met, you know. Not how the tithe is supposed to work. I remember back when I was a youth pastor and, and this subject of giving uh, at that time caused me to wrestle a lot with guilt because... I knew about tithing. I knew I should be tithing. I intended to tithe. I wanted to tithe. I planned to tithe. But the problem was I was just so um, so very inconsistent. What would happen is I, I would I would miss church or I would find myself in church and I wouldn't have my checkbook with me. And, and then weeks would go by and then sometimes months and I'd look back. And then after you haven't given for a while, to go back and give that giant chunk became real difficult. So I just said, okay, we're starting over, Lord. Let's start fresh, right? And we just kept doing that. And then I would just give on these, in these sporadic ways. And the one thing that I found that really helped me in this moment, that helped me get over the hump, was just something real simple. Automatic payment through my bank. And I, and I know, like, some churches, that it's taught, like, never do that. You have to write the check or take the actual cash and put it in because that tells your heart. And that may work for some of you, and that may be a real good thing, but that didn't work for me. What works for me is every single time the little cool baggy thing, the handlebags go by, what works for me is knowing the very first monies that hit my checking account this week went to God. God is first in my life, at least financially. That works for me. Just... Getting real practical there. It may not work for you. You may come up with your own system. But for me, that was real helpful. And, and friends, that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to be practical. We're trying to uh, help all of us to become more the people God wants us to be. To help our church be more the church God longs for us to be. And let me say a word here to those of you who maybe are here and you're struggling with basic needs. Like, I'll be specific, every day or week or month, it's difficult for you to provide clothing and food and shelter for yourself or your family. How does this message relate to you? Because there'll be some in our midst for whom this is the case. One of the things I love about the Bible, I love about our God, is that he has a heart for people in need. Over and over and over again, the scriptures, we read some of those earlier. Um, Meeting the needs of his children is one of God's highest priorities. And it's one of God's highest priorities for his people, for his church. We are called to meet the needs of the needy among us. But I'll also say this. um, One of the places we do that in this church is through a fund called the Benevolence Fund. I'll, I'll talk real practically about how you can give to our church um, one of the places you can give is the Benevolence Fund. And the Benevolence Fund is where people can give um, an extra amount over and above to just support the needs of people in our congregation and in our larger community. It's one of the ways that we meet the needs of one another together, like the Acts 2 Church did, just through our Benevolence Fund. Just know that. And if you're one of those people in need, I'll say this to you. God has wonderful things to say about people who give in the midst of their need. In fact, Jesus tells a story about a woman who gives in the midst of her poverty. And Jesus is observing people giving. He's observing some wealthy people giving. And then in the midst of this, this this very poor woman comes and she gives uh, what seems to be a, a, a very, very small amount. And then Jesus says, 
She gave more than anyone else. And here's what I think God is trying to say. Whether you have a lot or just a little, do not miss out on the joy and blessing and deep soul transforming experience of giving to God. Even if you can just afford what in your mind is a fairly insignificant meager amount, there is something powerful about giving to God and experiencing what He longs for you to experience in that. He will use even what little you have to lead your heart. All right, I'm running a little short on time here, so let me tackle just a few other hanging issues and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, Next question on the list, does the money that I give to charities or other causes count as part of my giving, part of my tithe? Well, first of all, I want to say this. I I think this is the wrong question because it starts with how much do I have to give instead of how much can I give or how much do I get to give. I'll also remind us again that as Christ followers, we are now freed from any certain static percentage to give and called to just give generously and sacrificially. But all that to say, a lot of you have this question. So let me tell you practically uh, what Amy and I do here. Um, Before I do that, though, I want to say this. There's, There's always this tension I feel when I'm talking about money because Money isn't something that people always love to talk about. In fact, one guy I read this week said, there's two things that Christians don't like to talk about in church, money and sex. And the good news is, today we're not talking about sex. Um, (laughs) There's always this tension between um, me wanting to be this very open, honest, transparent pastor and leader in our church. Like, my life is an open book. I want to tell you how I practice and live. I want to try to be as much as I can an example for you to follow in a lot of ways. So many of you are an example to me. And so I want to be open and transparent. But then there's this other side of this issue where Jesus says, be real careful about talking about how much you give. Because there's this thing in all of us, in you and in me too, called pride. And we can easily start to sort of look at me, look what I do. And so when I talk about giving, I kind of find myself battling and wrestling between these two realities. And so if if I seem vague or kind of glitchy as I talk about this, you'll know that I'm just wrestling between those two things. Um, But in this moment for this, I'll I'll, I'll say this. Amy and I, our decision is that we try to give at least 10% of our income to the general fund of our church. That's the main fund of our church. It's the fund that gives the elders full freedom to use that, that money however they wish. And then, then other things that we want to support in the church and outside of the church, we give above and beyond that. That's what, that's what we uh, try to do. That's our conviction. And part of that comes out of that Malachi passage I read at the beginning, which I think calls God's people to support fully the work of the local congregation. And I'm not telling you that to, to sound really spiritual. I'm not telling you that to mandate that or to put that on you in any way. I'm not trying to impose that on you. Um, I do, however, want to say this. If Cedar Mill Bible Church is your local church, I believe God wants you to be fully committed here. And whatever that looks like for you, um, let me call you and challenge you to embrace that. And that may be, seem like a little bit like self-serving since I'm the pastor here. Um, but I'll just be honest with you. I've been a pastor for a long time. I've been in the ministry for a long time. In all my life, I have never been more excited about a church and the work that God is doing and the potential that we have to have impact for the kingdom than, than I am um, for our church right now in this season. 
In fact, a couple of months ago, we had a new member class. And Dan Larson, who's the executive pastor here, he's been here like 28 years. He stood up in front of the new members of our church, the people joining our church for the very first time. He said, I've been here 28 years. I've never been more excited for Cedar Mill Bible Church than I am right now. God's doing some amazing stuff here and we have a bright future. I'm telling you what, I was like floating for like a month after Dan said that. I was so pumped because it's how I feel as well. And so this is your church. This is your church. This is not a sales pitch, but this is me just being honest. Be a part of it. Invest here. God is doing good stuff. And he will use us. So I'll say that. Um, I'll also tell you that along with the general fund uh, and the benevolence fund, we have two other funds you can give to. The missions fund. This is the fund... uh, that funds all of our missions work around the world. It supports our missionaries. We keep it separate from the general fund to protect it so that when times get lean in the general fund, uh, we are not tempted to sort of cheat and steal from our missionaries. But it does require you knowing about it and supporting it. And so I'm giving you this information, again, not as a sales pitch, but to, uh, to just give you information so you know how giving works around here. And then last but not least, there's the building fund. Obviously, we use the building fund to, to add on to and keep this building that we live in going. I'll also say one more thing. Uh, It does seem a little self-serving and I'm a bit uncomfortable um, every time I give a message on giving, talking about giving in the church. And so I'll say this. If you're new here or you don't know me or if I seem kind of like one of those televangelists to you and you just have a sense that I'm going to get a raise if you start to give more and that the elders are going to like gather the offering this week and go, nice cut to Shara. Here's your, you know, here's your portion. Um, That's not how it works, by the way. Um, I have nothing to gain by you giving more or less. I think you do. But if you don't trust me, if you can't trust pastors who don't touch their shirts in, I totally get it. Give somewhere else. Don't let doubts about me or this church or any church keep you from experiencing what God wants you to experience through radical generosity with your finances. Find a place you trust, find a place you believe in, and you give. If it's here, give here. I promise you, you can trust the elders of this church. We're not perfect, but they do a good job. Um, But if not, do not use me or this church as an excuse And let that rob you um, of the blessings that God wants to do in your life and through your giving. So I will say that very boldly. Okay, I got two more things and and then we're going to land the plane here. Here's This last question I almost didn't ask, but this is maybe one of the most frequent questions I get asked about giving as a pastor. And it's kind of a silly one, but I'm going to lob it out there because it comes from you. Do I give on the net or on the gross? Do I calculate the percentage of my giving before or after taxes? Well, first of all, I want to say again, I do not believe there are rules on this. Ultimately, every single believer in Jesus has to do the hard work of connecting with God and hearing from the Holy Spirit for yourself on this. That being said, I will offer you my own practice and conviction. Very simple. Who is first in your life, God or the IRS? And furthermore, if you are calculating your giving after taxes, I just have to ask you this. What is driving that decision? Because I know how some of you think, right? You're looking at the numbers and you're trying to give as little as possible, which is in maybe the wrong starting place. Um, and I've done this before. I used to give like after taxes. It made it a little simpler. It made it a little easier. Uh, but I think... The question isn't how much you're giving. God doesn't really care about the money either way. But what God does care about is your heart in the midst of giving. 
There's this, there's a story of a, a, a strong man who used to do this strong man show at the circus. You've seen the strong man? They like do all these crazy things and they tear phone books and it's like, oh, look how impressive I am. I'm huge. Um, and this strong man, he had this routine where he would take this sponge and he would fill it with water and he would wring the sponge out and he would just wring and then he would hold the sponge up after he'd wrung it out and he'd say, I challenge anyone in the crowd who can come up here and wring even one drop of water out of the sponge. If you can get even one drop of water, I'll give you a thousand dollars and then people would, all, would raise their hand and they'd come up and they'd try to and no one in all these years was ever even able to get one drop out of the sponge after the strong man had taken his hands to it. And then one day it happened. A little scrawny, skinny guy with glasses in the back raised his hand and he came walking down the aisle and he grabbed the sponge. And this guy not only wrung um, a drop of water out of the sponge, he was able to wring an entire glass full of water out of the sponge. And the strong man was amazed and he was blown away and he was perplexed. And he said, who are you? Where did you come from? And what do you do for a living? And the man said, I work for the IRS. <laughs> this needed a point of levity in the middle of this sermon. The point is this, for God, this is a heart deal. Do not miss that. Do not forget it. The government doesn't ask you when you pay your taxes. There's no place on the, on the form, you know, how's your heart with this? Are you giving with joy? Do they ever do? No, because they don't care. The government doesn't care if you're giving with joy. They just want your money. God, however, cares deeply. He's after something so much more than your money. He's the sovereign Lord of the universe. He does not care about your money. He doesn't need your money. But he desperately longs for your heart and life. All right, last thing. Um, and this last thing is just the challenge that I want to leave you with today. So many times, church, and I know, and I, know I, I sit sometimes, you know, on your side of the, of the message. And... I try to preach all my sermons to myself and I listen to other pastors preach online. Now, so many times I hear a message and sometimes they're good and sometimes they're okay and sometimes they're not so good. But I walk away and then nothing changes in my life. There's, there's no action step. There's no response. And then I can go days or weeks or months or even years and I'm not, and I'm, I'm not a different person There's no transformation in me. And how disheartening is that? And this topic is so central that Jesus talks about it constantly. And it is so practical. And it is so impactful. And it is so real. I do not want you to walk out of here today unchanged. With nothing different in your life. And so as we close, I'm going to offer you a three-pronged challenge. And I I hope and pray and encourage you to take me up on this challenge. Really easy. Three challenges for you as we leave. The first, or one challenge, three, three prongs. The first prong is this. Get honest. Get honest about how much you are giving to God. I said it earlier, but I'll say it again. Sometimes we leave things ambiguous, and the reason for that is it's just easier not to know. It's easier to deceive ourselves into thinking that we are living in a way that we aren't when we avoid facing the facts. So first of all this morning, here's my number one challenge. Get clear on the money that you are giving. Get clear on the money that you are spending outside of yourself. Get clear on the money you are giving to the work of the kingdom of God in this world. Get clear on the money that you are giving to our church family. Just get clear. Second part of the challenge, give to God first. 
Let your money lead and make a statement to to your heart that the money you have is from Him, from God, and that He is number one in your life. Pick a percentage of income. I'm not saying what percentage. That'll be between you and the Lord. But pick a percentage that you're going to commit to give to the Lord every week or every month or however your paychecks come and commit to giving it to God first and then order your life and your priorities after that. This will just do something real simple for you. It will make your life so much less stressful. It will it'll take away the temptation for you to feel like you want to give, you intend to give, but it was just a hard month, or I found this deal online, or my kid really wanted, or I saw this thing at Home Depot and I didn't even know it existed, but now I just have to have it. And so God, next month, we can do it next month. So many of you live that way and it's because God isn't first, He's last. And it's so easy to rationalize and justify And miss the mark in this area. You know, let your money make this statement to you every single month. I am not in the number one slot. My friends and family aren't even in the number one slot. My God is in the number one slot. Third part of the challenge. And some of you are wondering like, well then how much is that percentage? How much do I have to commit to on that, Pastor Dave? Maybe this one will help you. Grow in your giving. After you have taken step one and you've gotten honest about how much you give, here's the third part of the challenge. Grow in that. Increase that. Make that a little more. One guy I I was listening to a, a while back said, you know, I grew up in a home where tithing was taught. We were just taught to give 10%. So when I was like eight years old, I started tithing. And then I grew up and I went to college and I was tithing. And then I graduated and I was tithing and I went to seminary and I was tithing. I became a pastor and I was tithing and I started preaching the gospel for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years and I was still tithing. Friends, do you do anything else the same way you did it when you were 10? That's the question that the Holy Spirit asked him. Is there anything else in your life that you do it the same way you did when you were 10? And the idea is this. Tithing is not supposed to be a lid on your giving. There is no place in the Bible, and if I'm wrong on this, you can let me know, where it says, Thou shalt not be more generous than 10%, thus saith the Lord. But that's kind of the attitude that some of us have, right? Like, we've reached the pinnacle, we've reached the mountaintop, we've arrived in the promised land. Friends, for some in this room, tithing is a great goal. You can move towards and reach for and stretch towards someday being able to say, I'm a tither, I give 10% back to God first. But for others of us, For as much as God has given, for as much money as you make, for as long as you've been following Jesus, you should be long past tithing by now. Again, if that sounds self-serving, don't give it here. Don't let me let you off the hook on that. So that's the three-pronged challenge. That's the very practical way that I think God wants to meet you and challenge you and grow in relationship with you today. And we're going to close our time the same way we always close, and that's at the table. And the reason we do this is because at the center of the table is this message. Our relationship with God is based on one thing, grace. And at the center of grace is this word that we've been talking about all morning, give. Because at the center of God's grace is the fact that He gave, not because He had to, not because He ought to, not because He should, but because He loved us. 
He gave because He loved us. And He gave the most precious thing of all. He gave Himself. He gave His Son. He hung on the cross and gave His life that we might have life in Him, life eternal, that our relationship with Him might be restored. And friends, we come to be givers, not because we ought to or because we should, but because we've fallen in love with the ultimate giver of all the one who gave his son. And so this morning, here's what I want to ask that you do. I I first want you to come to the table. We're going to spend some time with some music. Come to the table, receive the elements, receive the bread and the cup, and remember how, how huge of a giver our God is. And then after you've received the elements, you can just take them on your own when you're ready. Then I want you to sit and I want you to say, Lord, in response to that, how would you have me respond to Pastor Dave's challenge today? And then... From, from that point forward, it'll be between you and the Holy Spirit. But that's what I'm asking. Spend some time with the Lord. Ask Him how you're supposed to respond. Let me pray. Father, I'm again going to ask a covering over this message this morning that every word spoken would strike the ears and hearts and minds in this room in just the way you long for it to, Lord. I pray that... that, that uh, that no one would be let off the hook. But I say that, Lord, with... I pray, Lord, that the sound system would do better. Um, I pray that uh, that no one would be let off the hook um, in experiencing the power of your grace and then the call and the offer to respond to that. And so, so Jesus, cover the rough edges of what I've said here today. Convict our hearts, give us practical steps, and then give us the boldness and conviction and commitment to follow through and walk with you. That is our prayer. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.